This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. We hope you enjoy the next two days, and we're very pleased to kick off uh, the conference with uh, a really wonderful panel, which Lucy is going to introduce. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Not really a panel, but it's two speakers, and okay. we... You call that a panel? It's a panel. Oh, all right. Okay. <laughs> uh, we are pleased to um, have Sheldon Dent, who's um, standing in for Nancy Bargman. Well, Sheldon has uh, uh, spoken at this conference before, and he doesn't need to uh, be described as a stand-in. He's uh, a standalone speaker, and uh, he is the assistant Deputy Director of Programs and Policy Branch for the Department of Developmental Services, has worked with people with disabilities for nearly 40 years and has been with DDS for, I believe, 31 years. And um, he will be followed by, on the panel, on the panel, <laughs> Eric Zygman, who is the Executive Director of Golden Gate Regional Center. And um, I didn't get all that background info on you, Eric, so you have to uh, describe yourself a bit more. And uh, not so, that interesting. Not that interesting. <laughs> oh, I bet it is. I bet it is. So, and uh, so, Mr. Dent, will you come to the podium, please? Welcome back. Good morning, everybody. All right. First of all, Nancy Bargeman wanted to make sure that I apologize profusely for her. She sincerely wanted to come to this meeting. She knows that there's a lot of clinicians and such that she doesn't get to speak to very often, so she really wanted to be a part of this. But one of the things that got in the way but is helpful to all of us is the budget hearings. So she had to go up to the Senate and to the the, our representatives to talk about our next state budget and she is doing that and doing a great job of it. Some of you might have saw her on the Cal Channel just yesterday talking about budget issues and that is what called her away. One of the things she asked me to do and it still says Nancy Bargeman on her presentation because it is her presentation. I'll try to do it justice but it is what she wanted me to go over for you today. An update on the developmental disability service system. So, I'm also supposed to let you know that I don't have anything to disclose. So, <laughs> with, that, with that said, the Landerman Developmental Disability Services Act. As you know, it was passed in 1969, and it just celebrated its 50th anniversary. But the biggest thing about this Landerman Entitlement Act is that it's the only entitlement act of all of the 50 states. So California has the only entitlement to services for people with developmental disabilities. We have a mission statement. We have a vision statement. The mission statement is to ensure that people with developmental disabilities have the ability to live lives just as you and I do. 
our mission statement is that and our vision, building partnerships and supporting choices is really about a system of partnering with folks so that our system works together as one. It's a, a system structure for people to work together and agencies to work together and everybody to work together to make services and supports available for people with developmental disabilities. When we look at our system structure, you'll notice that it starts with the governor's office, of course. We have the Health and Human Services Agency, which the Department of Developmental Services is a part of. And then we have the state developmental centers, as well as one state-operated community facility, which is run by the state and has state employees. And then we contract with 21 regional centers. Oftentimes, people call the department and ask us to have an issue with the regional center and they want Department of Developmental Services to address it immediately. And we oftentimes, unless it has something to do with a violation of law or regulation, we have to refer them back to the regional center because the regional centers are all, and a lot of people are surprised by this, the regional centers are all private nonprofit organizations and they answer to a board of directors. Other than violations of law or regulation, everything else we can, we can address things that have to do with a violation of law or regulation, but everything else has to go through their, their regional center director and their board. So one of the big examples that we get is oftentimes people, vendors might get vendored to serve, like a residential provider might get vendored to serve six, or get licensed to serve six people, and the regional center tells them, we'll vendor you for four. And they'll call the department and say, I got, I got licensed for six people, I want six people in my home. The regional center says they'll only give me four. That is not something that the department can do something about. That is a regional center and their board of directors' decision to serve people in that manner, and that's how regional centers were set up, to do what they, their local community feels is the most appropriate way to serve folks. So that's not a violation of law or regulation, and when we get calls about that, we refer them back to the regional center because that's the way our system works. The regional centers have case managers that help coordinate services, and they vendor service providers who actually provide direct services and supports to our consumers. And all of that is done through a IPP and a person-centered planning process. So as I said, they contract with these 21 regional centers. The 21 regional centers are private and nonprofit. There are 21 regional centers to cover all 56 counties of, the, of California. Regional centers work with approximately 45,000 vendors who provide those direct services, and we work with a system of partner partners, other organizations, stakeholder groups, individuals, families, to implement the vision of the Lanterman Act. So what's been going on the last few years? More than a few years, I guess. From 2002 to 2016, I can see the growth in our consumer population. As of 2000, December of 2016, we're serving 304,000 people. When you look at the regional center population from the smallest regional center, Redwood Coast Regional Center, up at the northern tip of California, versus Inland Regional Center in San Bernardino, you see Redwood Coast serving 3,600 folks, and Inland Regional Center, 31,300 folks, with the average regional center serving 14,000 folks. The way regional center, the way this consumer population is growing, essentially, we could start a new regional center every year. 
consumer population by age. As we gather this type of information at the department, this is one of the areas where we, we look at trends to see what's going on and see what kind of resources need to be developed or what kind of legislation might need to be addressed to address some of the trends. One of the things you'll notice here is that our elderly seniors are beginning to grow, which tells us that our folks are starting to live a lot longer. One of the things that we've done to address this is we've worked with community care licensing, and you may have noticed this already, but a lot of the community care licensing folks are now starting to allow people to age in place. So folks that are in adult residential facilities can stay in adult residential facilities. They don't have to simply move because they turn 60. Usually the adult residential facilities limit is up to 59 years of age, but community care licensing is working with us and now for the most part is allowing people, unless there's some drastic differences between the consumer population, will allow people to stay in adult residential facilities for as long as they choose. Consumer population by living arrangement. As you can see, developmental center populations continuing to go down. Less people are living those. Of course, that's because of our initiative to close all of our developmental centers. And as has always been the case, regional centers work hard to support people and their families. So the family home, parent, guardian, still continues to grow. And people continue to live in their family home as long as possible. When we look at the consumer population by diagnosis, another thing that you see, you can clearly see that autism growth continues to climb rapidly. This is not a secret, and we continue to provide work on developing resources to address those issues. The population of developmental centers and state-operated community facilities. You can see this, the steep decline that started in 1994. I don't know if people remember the Caulfield years when we were court-ordered to move over 2,000 people out of developmental centers within a five-year period. That accounts for the steep decline right there in the early years. And, but we've, ever since that time, there have been laws put in place and the lack of federal funding for some of our developmental centers, actually for all of our developmental centers at this point, which has caused us to make the initiative to close all of our developmental centers. And now we have less than 1,000 people living in developmental centers. And then we look at a few budget things. And of course, that is also driven by the fact that we are closing our developmental centers. So there's more growth in community services. From 1617, it was 5.8 billion to community services and proposed for 1718 is 6.4 billion dollars. That's an interesting stat by itself because, as she said, I've been in this services for developmental disabilities for almost 40 years, and I remember when the budget for the whole regional center system was less than 20 million dollars. So we're in the billions now, and we're we're working hard. And the reason that we're able to be in the billions and the reason that we still have an Entitlement Act is 
the fact that we are able to capture more federal dollars. It is imperative that the department and our service system captures every federal dollar we can get in order to maintain the entitlement provided by the Landerman Act. As you can see, a little less than 50% of our funds are federal, but as we move from the developmental center systems, moving everybody into the community, we'll have a lot more pressure still to maintain those federal dollars, and the federal government will still be looking at the community in terms of the dollars that are spent for federal funding. So we'll be under the same types of pressures, really, as the developmental centers were. Developmental centers were unable to maintain certification, which is partly what's led to their closure, other than the fact that people shouldn't have to live in state institutions. But the other, the driver of that has to do with they could not maintain their certification, which meant total general fund dollars were going into funding the developmental centers. That same pressure will be on the community because through our home and community-based services waivers, that captures a great deal of federal funding. They'll be out monitoring to make sure we're meeting or complying with the home and federal waiver requirements. And if by chance we're not following those requirements, they will cut federal funding, which is why there's a lot of pressure on regional centers and our service system to capture those federal dollars and be in compliance with federal waivers. So who do we serve? As you can see, the Hispanic community and our white community are the primary drivers. And when we look at who we serve, we also have to be mindful of the unrepresented communities. There's a, one of the big, big things that's talked about a lot at the legislature and within the department and within the regional centers now has to do with disparity in services to different ethnic groups. A very interesting issue that's come up with this and another slide will show you has to do with even though white is still the largest, they're starting to go down and Hispanic is starting to be a large area of growth. However, when you look at the utilization of services, you'll see that Hispanic is not utilizing a lot of the services that are available to them. We find this can be, of course, an issue with culture, but it is something that we want to address, and it's something that the legislature wants to address, as there have also been a lot of complaints about in different regions where the population in Hispanic or black is high, and yet the utilization of services seems to be in unequal. So as you can see from this slide, even though Hispanic is high, they only utilize 79% of the services that are authorized. Another interesting thing that we found with the white population, they use 84%, but they also are the largest user of residential services, which is interesting. So what are some of the recent changes that have come about at the department now? I'm sure many of you remember back in 2009 when there were system-wide reductions, how difficult it was to get services for anybody. 
now that the budget has started to make a return, we've got a little more funding to our system. We're able to, as you can see, restore early start program, restoration of prior service provider payment reductions, rate increases for specific service types and to provide additional compensation for direct service providers. There's additional funding for a paid internship program and service provider placement incentive funding for competitive integrated employment. And I find this one to be really interesting because when we did statewide stakeholder meetings to talk about how to implement this paid internship program, the legislature provided $10 million for this program. And as I said earlier, there was the point where we only got $20 million for the entire system and we were able to get $10 million for this one program, we've come a long ways. And we have additional funding to regional centers to address purchase of service disparities for underserved populations. In fact, we, got 11, we get $11 million annually to address that issue that I just talked about between the different ethnicities. We also receive increased funding to address statewide minimum wage increases. Increased funding to facilitate development of community resources for individuals transitioning from DCs and to meet challenging service needs. We have increased funding for regional center operations, including reducing caseload ratios and new positions at regional centers. Some of those new positions include a, a cultural specialist, an employment specialist, and a federal program specialist to, again, ensure that regional centers are able to comply with home and community-based service waiver issues. As, as I said, those dollars are going to be critical to our system. And then new DDS priorities and initiatives. Of course, one of the reasons Nancy's not here has to do with new legislation and funding. So it's going to be incumbent upon us to operationalize and implement any new legislation and funding. Home and community-based settings, the federal, do, federal rules are out there for people to review. They're critical for our federal dollars, and we need to be in compliance with the federal home and community-based settings rules by March of 2019. We have new community service models enhanced behavior support homes. We have adult residential facilities for persons with special health care needs. We have added delayed egress secure perimeter services to our residential programs that's available for folks to use when needed. One of the things I would say about the enhanced, uh, or the, what is also called our fission or adult residential facility for persons with special health care needs, they are starting to grow rapidly. They have proven to be a very effective and successful service for people with, that are medically fragile. And in fact, one of the, hopefully one of the initiatives might be to spread that program to, for children with, that are medically fragile. That's what we're looking at next. We already have, in past I've talked about the R-Fishing program because it was modeled after the special, the ch program for children, which was previously called Bates Homes. 
And the art vision was modeled after that, but the problem with the Bates home is that they can only be done in small family homes or foster homes. We want to expand that program so it can be done in a group home so that it doesn't have to just be run by the person that owns the home. Then, of course, we have the self-determination self program. And I don't know if people know, we've been trying to get this self-determination program off the ground for quite some time. We applied. Actually, we're the only state that had to apply to the federal government for the self-determination program. And we <coughs> sent our application in way back in 2014, December of 2014. And we're still responding to questions from the federal government <laughs> to try to get this thing off the ground. And even once we get it off the ground, it's still just supposed to be a three-year pilot and can serve 2,500 people. But we're, we feel like we're getting a lot closer to answering all their questions, and hopefully we'll get this thing going in, the short, in a short period of time. One of the things about the self-determination program that people may not know is that people get to direct their own budget. So they'll receive, depending on what their IPP needs are, they'll receive a budget to carry out that on their own, and they can choose their service providers, who they want to get services from, who they want, who they want to get their support from. It should be a very interesting program once it, once it gets here. And then, again, we want to reduce inequity and disparities in our system. Reporting on regional centers. I don't know if people have looked at our website lately, but we have a dashboard on our website now where a lot of regional center data on individual regional centers can be found. And so you can look at a website and you can look at that dashboard for regional centers and get a lot of data on what that particular regional center is doing. And of course, the developmental center closure and transition activities. There's a great deal of work and activity going on to transition people appropriately from the developmental centers. One of the big complaints during the Caulfield years was that we moved people too fast. I can tell you that that's not the case with the developmental center closures for Fairview, Porterville, and Sonoma, which are the three remaining developmental centers. There is a lot of transition activity that goes on with each individual that moves from those developmental centers. And regional centers are doing a great deal of work to develop the appropriate resources for folks and see that they are moved appropriately and that once they move, the quality of services they provide is appropriate as well. And then we continue to provide community development funds to regional centers to develop resources not only for people coming out of the developmental centers but for people that are in our college hospital, jails, and we still have some consumers that live out of state that we want to bring back to California because we believe California is the most appropriate and our system was developed to serve people in California. So those folks that had to be placed out of state for one reason or another, regional centers are developing resources so that they can bring them back to California. And with that, are there any questions? Okay. And so now it's my pleasure to introduce, um, for the local perspective, um, as it were, 
Uh, Mr. Eric Zygman, who is the Executive Director of Golden Gate Regional Center. And um, give us some background on yourself, please, Eric. Welcome. Thank you. I'm going to get a glass of water. Thank you, Dr. Crane. Um, I, uh, I didn't want to do that when Shelton was speaking because I knew I would spill it and fall down and stuff. So um, thanks so much for inviting us to speak today. Um, I feel really honored. Um, this, this conference has a great reputation, and, and I know you guys will have a great couple of days with all the sessions that are going on. So I will give you a, um, a brief, short Biography of me. I started in direct service in 1989 in a sheltered workshop with 110 people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And we had about 20 folks working in the community. And over 15 years, uh, we shut the sheltered workshop and got 110 people working in the community. This was in Santa Cruz, California. It was, an, it was um, outside of the closure of Agnew's Developmental Center and the, and the part I was lucky to play there. Um, the closure of the workshop and moving people into community employment was certainly one of the uh, high watermarks of, of the work I've been involved in. Um, <clears throat> so after that, I played a lot of roles in an organization um, like many of the old-timers uh, in the system, um, including Nancy Bargeman. I, I had a lot of different roles um, that hopefully prepared me for the work we're doing now. Um, I was involved in, in services and supported employment, and as I said, and in supported living and in independent living and in children's respite and just a broad uh, variety of, of the provision of services and learned a lot from the people we served in those years. Um, and then I consulted for nine years, which was a shock to me. I thought I'd do it for a year, but the, the work just was so interesting. Um, a lot of it had to do with the closure of Agnew's Developmental Center uh, in the middle of those nine years, certainly between 2004 and 2009 when, uh, when Agnew's closed. And uh, that included work to help uh, East Bay Group found uh, Alegria Community Living is a wonderful provider in the East Bay, um, all throughout the East Bay, and <clears throat> excuse me. Also, um, I was director of the of the uh, quality management system for the Bay Area project, which was the closure of Agnews, where we um, got to see the transformation of folks from um, living in an institution to living in the community. And I got to see 300 individual stories, really of the stunning um, changes in people's lives. Uh, people in their 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s uh, mostly moved out into the community and really got a new lease on life and got to do things, um, uh, extraordinary sort of transformational things. So, um, And then the last three years prior to me coming to Golden Gate nine months ago, I was um, the uh, CEO of the Pomeroy Center. It used to be called the Rec Center for the Handicapped, or RCH, a legacy 60-year-old provider in the southwest corner of San Francisco um, that was a, a, a leader in, in its history in some eras, some decades, around recreation and people with developmental disabilities. Um, and that was a great experience. So now I'm charged with wanting, running one of these 
interesting beasts called regional centers. There's only 21 in the state. Um, Sheldon referenced that we are 501c3 nonprofits and some of the greatest innovation, some of the highest highs and lowest lows have come from the fact that we are nonprofit organizations. And though we do much of the work of government, we are not government agencies. Not yet, anyway. Um, so uh, one thing that's very interesting is, and I've really never completely fact-checked where this came from, but I believe the original design of the regional centers was to add a regional center for every million in population, the general population in California, in which case today we'd have 40 regional centers rather than the 21. Um, and then, as Shelton mentioned, the other way to look at that is just the intakes into the system each year are about 13,000, 14,000, and that's the you know, uh, size of a, of a medium-sized regional center. So we are taking in about the equivalent of, of the people we serve uh, in terms of adding a regional center each year. So um, I am going to figure out how to use these forward. All right. So those are my disclosures, no products, no services. I'm not selling anything, but goodwill and civil rights. <laughs> All right, so here's what I'll try to do in the next 20 minutes or so and leave some time for questions for Shelton and I. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about <clears throat> the history of, of the regional centers and um, the Lanterman Act in particular, um, some of this duplicates a little bit of what um, what Sheldon had said, but hopefully gives you a little bit different perspective. I mean, I think the, this 16th annual conference, um, uh, really some of the key language around the point is to really look at community living broadly and um, transforming systems of care. And um, the history of the Lanterman Act really is about sort of transformation of a different kind of approach than the typical government approach to services. And like any system, it falls on hard times at different points and needs renewal. And I, it feels, hopefully to me, that we're at the beginning of a renewal period with the influx of uh, funding that came into the system this year um, and some of the discussions that are going on and certainly the closure of the institutions. Um, So let us plow on. Um, I always like to quote physicists when we're doing a conference on healthcare. No, the, I, I've always been taken by the phrase, where, you know, we stand on the shoulder of giants, and that was Isaac Newton's phrase about Galileo, I believe. Um, really, all the work we do is predicated on the work that comes before us, and especially when we talk about civil rights, it's you've got to be in it for the long haul. So it's really good to know where you came from. Um, and then it's also helpful to know where you're going. Uh, but we really do have a 50-year history, and I wanted to um, kind of put a context to what was happening when, up to leading up to the Lanterman Act being passed, and um, this slide could really be fact-checked. Um, I would like, <laughs> in my revised version, which is almost better that it's not up here, um, don't don't think you're a civil rights like expert when you're not. And so I did some of this from memory. And when I really looked on the internet, I was like, well, I got it pretty close. Uh, I, 
I was thinking I really wanted like an organization like uh, New York Times or CNN to really fact check, you know, so to make sure it's not fake news. <laughs> I'm trying to have any fake news. Um, but it really, all these things were going on. The Civil Rights Act of 1964... Um, Selma didn't have a bus strike. Montgomery, Alabama had the bus strike, but Selma did have a march, so I got that half right. And then the 1964 Democratic Convention did have a silent vigil for civil rights, which was fascinating, which I guess my mistake led me to more information, but I was really referring to the 1968 Democratic uh, Convention where it was much less than silent and there were a lot of advocates, including some people with disabilities, um, protesting uh, the Vietnam War and other social change things. The March on Washington, the Stonewall riots for, uh, at that time, gay rights now would be called LGBT rights, uh, the second wave of feminism. I mean, all these things played into um, the, the Lanterman Act and the independent living mo- uh, movement. I mean, the Ed Roberts Center is across the bay at Berkeley, and I urge everyone, if they have a chance, to visit it over the Ashby Bart Station. Ed Roberts was a giant in in uh, moving things forward for all people with disabilities, and and so um, certainly played a role in that. Um, Judy Human, uh, others uh, in that movement, um, and so that's all that was swirling around uh, during that time in in the mid '60s when the first pilot project was announced to try regional centers as an alternative uh, to institutional living. Um, and I will say, you know, some of Shelton's data is very powerful to me, especially the chart on the reduction of people in institutions. In 1965, um, there were 13,500 individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities in state institutions, and there was waiting lists. That was like, we are full up. There was no room at the end. Um, and by the end of this next fiscal year, we should be under 500. And so that's the object lesson of civil rights change. It takes way longer than you would want, but um, that is a powerful change in our world and our system. So in the March on Washington, um, the famous I Have a Dream speech was, was done by Martin Luther King. And one of the fascinating little side stories is um, Mahalia Jackson, who's a gospel singer, uh, at the time would open, would often sing before um, uh, Dr. King's speeches, and he had asked her to s- sing a, a particular song before the I Have a Dream speech, and the I Have a Dream speech really didn't have I Have a Dream in it. That was really, uh, he took that ex- extemporaneously, inserted it from one of his other speeches. He hadn't really intended to have that part, and if you watch the YouTube video, here, my whole theme today is fact-checking me, I think. <laughs> if you look at the YouTube video of Dr. King's speech, or at least if it has enough uh, quality of sound, you can hear Mahalia Jackson in the background saying, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And so he pivots into that section. And it's just its very powerful for me lately about what role we all play in leadership. Here's this performer who played this kind of seminal role in in changing Dr. King's speech or making it this incredibly famous speech. So I just love that. I, loved, I do love that story, and I did check it out, and it, it is online. Um, so Dr. King said that um, he had a dream that his four little children would one day live in a world where they were not judged by the color of their skin, but by their, the content of their character. 
And I think, you know, the Lehrman Act really, for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities in California certainly was, was the launch of that kind of idea that people would be looked at as, as people first. Um, so I wanted to take a moment um, before I delve into the Lanterman Act to just talk about um, identity and disability and the importance of language. I, I'm not really, I'll, I almost said language Nazi, that's not really probably a good thing to say. I'm not really a, a stickler on language. I would like behavior and actions to really speak louder than language. But in this case, it really um, made an impression on me as I learned people first language and the difference between saying a disabled person or an autistic person and a person with autism or a person with a disability. The importance there is it sets the individual and the individual's identity at the core of explaining themselves. And so it's a it's a change from saying that the, the adjective, the modifier, is the important thing about the person, that they're defined by their deficits. Um, and it moves it to saying, I'm a human being that whatever challenges I have in life and whatever special gifts and talents, that informs my identity. But that's not the sum total of my identity. I, you know, People don't say I'm a, a glasses-wearing person as... Um, is like a person who wears glasses. So um, that's, that's really important to me. Um, it, it connects to the Dr. King quote that it's about the individual's identity and that it's, you know, and we all know this, the more you work with an individual, the less you see them as your first impression and the more you see them as the sort of the core identity of, of who they are that's informed by their life experience and, and, and sometimes by their disabilities. So um, I want to go a little bit deeper into the Lanterman Act promise. It's really the promise of equal access, and it's the promise of support. People hear the word entitlement, and they think of preference and preferential treatment, and it's important to bring them back really to a civil rights frame for me and, and say it's about equal access. It's about leveling the playing field. It's about letting people you know, live, work, and play and have an access to that um, as people without disabilities have access to it. It's not about any special quote-unquote treatment. <clears throat> um, I'm going to move, I think, quickly through these slides somewhat. But the first page of the Lanterman Act is like the Declaration of Independence for the country. It's really well written. Art Bolton was a staffer for Frank Lanterman and others, but Art really played a huge role in, in drafting this language. And it, it says right at the beginning that the state of California accepts a responsibility for persons with developmental disabilities and an obligation that it, to them that it must discharge. It affects hundreds of thousands of children and adults directly, and I love this part, and having an important impact on the lives of their families, neighbors, and entire communities. Developmental disabilities present social, medical, economic, legal, I would say issues now, they said problems in 1969, of extreme importance. So what did it really do? It, in, and all of this is contained, again, in that first page of the Lanterman Act, the first 4500-4501 of Welfare and Institutions Close, Code. It created an entitlement. The entitlement really got rolling in 1985 when, um, when the Arc of California sued the DDS, uh, brought a case that went to the state Supreme Court, and the 1985 state Supreme Court decision basically says, yes, this, this 
that obligation means you have an obligation both to um, fund the system and if the system runs out of money, the Department of Developmental Services, Shelton's going to go back to the legislature and ask for more money. When it runs out of money, that was the original intent in the Supreme Court decision. And that the Department of Developmental uh, Services would have somewhat limited influence on regional centers. So that the, at the service level, the IPP, the Individual Program Plan, as Shelton referenced, would be the driver of services, and the regional centers would, would be responsible to their communities to provide services in the way that best met those needs in the IPP. And the Department of Developmental Services would play a funding role and a legal role, but not, um, but not direct regional centers on what to do. And that really is where the flexibility in the system has come from and the ability to innovate in a way that we could have never done over 50 years if we were state-owned and operated. No offense, Sheldon. Um, it also established the IPP, um, and which is my, one of my mentors who's passed away last year, Barbara Mazy of Contra Costa ARC, used to just hammer about the IPP being the legal source document. It all comes from the IPP. Um, but it's true. That's how we plan one person at a time and don't have cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all services. We have services that are responsive to the individual. The other things the uh, Lanterman Act right away does is um, have this great language around establishing an array of services based on needs and choices and that it'll be regardless of age and regardless of degree of disability, which was a very important thing um, and it sometimes gets in the way when we're trying to explain to legislators, especially new legislators, and give them an idea of the people we serve. It's really helpful to bring a, a vast variety of the people we serve because it's hard if you haven't had an experience of intellectual and developmental disability in your family or neighborhood or friends to, to really be able to talk about just the, the, the vast um, diversity and difference and, and uh, um, you know, different presenting needs and different ways of communicating that's represented by the people we serve. And then this great phrase of integration into the mainstream life of the community. Who knew the community even had a mainstream life? Um, but it does, and we're still kind of chasing that, um, chasing that goal. And then another phrase that's an awesome phrase is that, the, and again, it relates to equal access, not preferential treatment, um, that we, the whole system is to help people with intellectual and developmental disabilities approximate the patterns of everyday living available to people without disabilities. And now we're seeing that language echoed in the, in the HCBS uh, final rule, some new federal expectations or current federal expectations that we have to comply with, that all the country has to comply with by March of 2019. But it was right there in the Lanterman Act. Um, and this great phrase that, you know, we really want to pursue people, um, pursue people, no, we're not pursuing them, they're coming to us. We really want to um, help people, you know, pursue their, uh, their own personal futures. And for me, that, I always like to think of that as, you know, we're here to help people have equal access, you know, access by meeting their needs, but also by, by helping them define and meet their aspirations. It's not just all about sort of Maslow's lowest levels of meeting needs. It's also about higher level aspirations that we are charged with supporting people in. Okay.
So that's that's a Lanterman Act Crypt Notes version. Um, so <clears throat> the, the, like the Civil Rights Act of 1964 uh, and, and the Supreme uh, Federal, the National Supreme Court decision of Brown versus B- Board of Education, in our country, in our culture, we often pass laws and then we have to have court cases that come along behind and enforce the law. And I was, when I went to graduate school at another university here in San Francisco, um, I got to be with uh, people who provided services or in management and leadership from disability services from all over the country and a couple from Finland. And we had two women, Helena and Tina, who were doing disability services in Finland. And when we went, to the, went through this section on the, all the Civil Rights Act, um, Brown versus Board of Education, they raised, one of them raised their hands. I remember it was probably Tina, not Helena. And she said, wait, why, why did you need to have the court case to enforce the law? Why didn't the people in, the, in your country just follow the law when you pass the law? <laughs> we all looked at each other from the United States and went, you must not be from here. <laughs> it's a very European, especially Northern European thing, the... You know, you pass the law, so you follow the law. So (laughs) that happened with the Lanterman Act. I mean, it it was in place, and it was chugging along, but it was really that 1985 state Supreme Court decision that said, no, 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 this true. This is, you know, you got to put your money where your mouth is, California. you got to fund this system, and it has to be based on individual need, not categories of cookie-cutter services. Um, So... Now we get into the, the health care within a social justice frame. So, and I learned this mostly from my friends and colleagues in that USF program um, in, in the disability rights movement, sort of writ large. Um, the people with physical disabilities in particular were very uncomfortable with the medical model. And I remember when we were closing Agnews, we had a, a great uh, RN who may be here today um, who who didn't come from the field and said, why do you keep saying medical model like it's a negative thing? Like, we in medicine think medical model kind of makes sense. And, but for people with disabilities, the medical model really translated into a disempowering model in our history where the physician would diagnose that the person was basically broken and needed to be fixed in various different ways and would prescribe things to help them get better. And... and, and and fix them, but the, what's even more kind of damaging was that we as human service professionals took on this quasi-medical model where we were diagnosing that if, you know, if Eric just would bathe more, Eric would be better, regardless of what Eric wanted to do. Um, and so we kind of, you know, diagnosed folks in the early days about what they needed to get a job in the community, for instance. And, it, you know, not only was disempowering and, and robbed people of their agency, but it, but it also wasn't effective. You know, we had folks who, you know, would have to be in workshops for, for years and years and years to be able to get a chance to have a job in the community when if we found somebody who really was interested in working in a hospital, instead of having a grooming goal and hammering on them of what normal grooming was, we would take them to the hospital and say, if you want to work here, you're going to have to take a shower, man. Um, so 
so that was a, that's a huge change, and I think we're still undergoing that change in our history. Um, dis, some disability rights advocates that I was with uh, about a year ago, two years ago, um, with autism, were talking about internalized ableism, which is a fascinating sort of idea that they had to overcome in their own lives, this idea that they, they weren't working hard enough to be able to pass for somebody without a disability, and they in, internalized that, and it had robbed them of, of some of their power. So one of the things I have at the end in, in one of the web um, links is um, the Disability Rights Education Defense Fund, DREDIF. They have this um, uh, healthcare stories website, and it if you think this is only in the past, this damage of, of that approach, prescriptive approach to people, um, there are all kinds of folks with disabilities who, um, who are on that uh, website talking about their experience with the healthcare professionals. Um, and it's, it's fascinating. Our, our clients, our consumer rights advocate, no wait, we're dropping that language, Elizabeth Grigsby, who's an, a great advocate for us at Golden Gate, um, I think we're just saying advocate. That's what I'm proposing to have her title be. Uh, yeah, she's on one of the stories, um, and and they're all compelling. So I, I urge you to look at that. Um, so that was our past. Where is our trajectory? Where are we headed in the future? It's really, and, and we're kind of in the middle of this, <laughs> from the medical model to a person-centered thinking model, or nothing about us without us model. Um, Golden Gate's been a leader in, in with along with Redwood Coast Regional Center and Tri-Counties Regional Center. We've attempted to be a leader in person-centered thinking. It's a whole sort of way to approach planning that really puts the individual served at the at the primacy as a, in the in the situation in the place that the Lanham Act says they should be. Um, and one of the more powerful, simple tools is just to help uh, folks who are facilitating those meetings, understand the difference between what's important for someone, which is sort of relates to all the prescriptive things we, we know as professionals that will help somebody uh, in their lives, but then to differentiate what's important to, uh, for someone from what's important to them so that there's a space cleared for them to be able to um, clarify that to the group in some ways or the people around them if they're not able to articulate what's important to them, help really clarify, what, and again, what their aspirations are, where, where they're aspiring to be and where they thrive. So um, what does healthcare within a social justice frame mean? It means for me that individuals get to be experts about themselves. Um, I've already talked a lot about needs and aspirations um, and that we listen to the people we serve. One of the best things about the organization skill center that I, I cut my teeth in or, you know, start out in, in that sheltered workshop in 1989 was, um, was that part of their core values was simply to listen to, to folks and listening is a huge part of leadership and it's served me well, um, in this, in this work. Um, and so, um, you know, at 10.15, at following Liz Sheldon, there's, there's a section, there's a seminar on when listening is complicated, so it really relates to that, and I'm sure we'll all learn from, from that seminar as well. Okay, now I'm way, way over time, so I'm going to move through quickly. Um, I talked about the healthcare stories, the intersection of developmental disabilities and mental health and dual diagnosis and the services is, is 
way longer than this lecture. Um, but it, I think it is really a core sort of area that we're going to have to improve in the future. So where are we now? Um, and where, what are we building towards in the future? Um, the scale is just amazing. <clears throat> and if you haven't a chance to look up um, We Are Here to Speak for Justice, it is another historical piece. I swear this is the last history lesson I'll give. Um, but if you look at that first paragraph and, and, and assume that it was divided equally between the first two regional centers in 1966, then Golden Gate probably had 275 individuals served or so and had a budget of about $500,000. Um, today we serve almost 9,000 people and our budget is $284 million. So as Shelton said, that it has really changed over time. The world we're in now um, is a world without developmental centers. It really is now because it's so very difficult to get anyone in, which is great from a civil rights perspective. It creates some, um, some challenges for regional centers to make sure we can serve everyone um, in the community. Um, Sonoma Developmental Center, as some folks in this room are keenly aware, is closing uh, December 31st, 2018 is a deadline set by the state um, and our you know, Golden Gate has 67 individuals that we do the case management for of the 300 and about 300 now living in Sonoma. And so we are very focused on moving them into the community as soon and as safely as possible. And there's lots of political pressure around this, both from the legislature, the federal government, the department. Um, but that's not the reason we're doing it. The reason we're doing it is, is we believe they'll have either anything from incrementally better lives to stunningly better lives, and mostly on the stunningly better lives side of it. And so I think we owe it to the 67 souls that are in Sonoma that we have responsibility for to, to move swiftly. Um, the, I'm not going to tell the Agnew story again. That's too long. Uh, other than to say I met recently with our great... Um, Director of Clinical Services, Dr. Lynn, with the San Mateo Health Plan, the Health Plan of San Mateo, and with the Puente Clinic down there. Those were both partnership. Um, we partnered with both of those entities, and while well, the Puente Clinic was sort of created during the closure of Agnews, and it was, it's really gratifying to see resources that um, came through the only, only startup money that was available since 2003 has been for developmental center closures, and, and these resources really have have both um, grown and helped our capacity in the community, and we hope to do more with them. The challenge for us now is really, and, and, and um, Director Bargeman of the De of Department of Developmental Services is very clear on this, and, and this, oops. Uh, I wonder if I say Director Bargeman, it'll <laughs> chirp every time. <laughs> um, Nancy's just watching me. Uh, she's very great. Uh, in, in many, many ways in terms of her vision for the future, but she's focused on the, the building of a safety net in the community because um, without developmental centers, we need that. I'm not going to talk about the CMS final rule. There's a ton to talk about in that. Um, and I, So I'm going to skip that slide and then uh, really wanted to talk a second about housing as a component of health. There's been some studies in Hawaii and I know um, our a partner nonprofit that develops housing, Brilliant Corners, is is doing some other work with um, the Health Plan of San Mateo that really talks about how powerful housing is 
in terms of impacting health. And the Hawaii, the Hawaii study actually put dollars to it and showed that it was a cost savings to the state to house people rather than to have emergency rooms be, be flooded with uh, individuals. The disparity projects connected to what Shelton was talking about with um, the, the disparity of purchase of service dollars in underserved ethnic communities is really powerful. We're starting a couple projects in, in Golden Gate, uh, one with support for families in San Francisco, and then expanding to Marin and San Mateo counties that are going to try to have cultural brokers go into underserved communities from those, you know, hiring from those communities. They're called promotoras also to help connect families to our services and, and have them use more of the services that they get authorized to use. Um, Dr. Rubin has a social and cultural determinants of developmental disabilities that relates to that a session coming up um, today at 3.30. Um, and then the self-determination is going to be really large. And, and for this group, folks are going to be able to um, have a much broader choice, the intent is, of what services to purchase. And so for healthcare, that might mean um, alternative uh, services, uh, you know, acupuncture, chiropractic, you know, herbal medicine, and that'll be an, have an interesting impact, I think, on your community. The two, um, two of the models that are happening in, in that are exciting in Golden Gates area, um, the uh, Arc of San Francisco has a healthcare advocacy program that I um, became really aware of when I was working at the Pomeroy Center because we uh, were able to kind of partner with them on some assessments. And it really plays a role to help advocate and coordinate health care for folks living on their own um, or in the family home. And uh, we found it really to be powerful. Okay, now I'm speeding along. Um, I just wanted to end with talking about Golden Gate. Um, we're going through a... Uh, strategic planning process, and these are the, all the areas of task force that my predecessor, Jim Shorter, has put together um, that is giving recommendations to our board for a, a three-year strategic plan in terms of how we're going to make decisions about you know, investments and resources um, in terms of strengthen, strengthening the system here at Golden Gate. Um, uh, in that, uh, Dr. Clarissa Kripke of UCSF and, and our clinical director, Ingrid Lynn, were able to um, put together recommendations with a task force um, for the regional center. And those recommendations are, you know, have detail to them in the plan, and we can share that if you're interested, but um, really are around these four areas, um, and they're all extremely important. Um, areas to try and strengthen health care um, for the people we serve. Um, I did want to mention, I didn't talk about the CART model in the last slide, but that is a, is a model now that um, Dr. Kripke has been working on for years and, and, and is now really launching with a number of regional centers, including Golden Gate, to try to bring consultation to homes and training to homes around particular individuals and, um, in nursing and psychiatry and psychology and with parent uh, sort of support expert, family support experts. And uh, we are really looking forward to, to having the, that help expand our capacity and make our services of higher quality. Um, I'll end just by you know, referring back to uh, Martin Luther King one more time. You know, he says the, the arc, and this is up a lot on places, the arc of the moral universe 
is long, but it bends towards justice. So the fact that we're a 50-year-old system and we're still dealing with some issues shouldn't discourage us. There's plenty of evidence that these, these changes take decades and sometimes centuries, and we're in it for the long haul. So thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.